0: Hello, this is Pastor Brooks Rice, and after a couple years of study, I decided to do a two-week lecture series on the role of women in church leadership. It's an area of study that's really challenged me. To look at my assumptions of what I believe that the Bible teaches and just come to the Bible more as a student and a learner rather than an expert and it's been really really good for me so we did a two-part lecture series this is the first part of that lecture series so uh, I hope that you enjoy and I hope it challenges you to uh, to look at your assumptions about what the Bible teaches about this topic and and just come back to the scriptures again and again uh, humbly as a learner so I hope you enjoy Okay, you guys ready to start there might be a few people that come in late and we'll just we'll we'll heckle them when they come in make them feel really bad for being late and um, And we'll get started so let me just talk a little bit about my journey here so well, first, I've, I've been a part of Foursquare churches since I was in third grade, and Foursquare was started by a woman in the 1920s. Her name was Amy Simple McPherson, and the, her life is so interesting. It's, it's worth worth looking into and just um, uh, getting to know her a bit more. But in a time where women weren't ministering, where women weren't preaching. Amy Simple, Amy Simple McPherson was, was, a, was prolific, tremendous. And everywhere she would go, just people would be healed and be saved. And then, and then she would move on to another town and churches got started. And so those churches, after a while, they said, hey, we were, let's like be a family of churches. And that's really how Foursquare as a movement got started back in the 20s by Amy Simple McPherson. And where she ended up landing was a place called Angela's Temple in Los Angeles. And that that place is still there, still a Foursquare church, ministering there. And uh, I mean, this place. I mean, Amy was doing 14 services a week in this place in LA. And at the time, at the size of LA was, um, they estimate that about half of the people living in LA were were at one of her services every single week. And uh, and just so many really, so many cool that things happened under her under her leadership. And so, like, I've been a part of four-square church. Uh, you know, like I said, for a long time. And in part of our DNA and our denomination of churches is that we believe that the Bible teaches that women should be empowered to, uh, to lead in church ministry. Now there's, now, um, there's, there's also, um, you know, some distinctions about what, okay, there's church leadership, but what about like home leadership? You know, like what about, what about husband and wife stuff? We're not going to get a whole, a whole lot into that, although we're going to touch, we're going to touch it. My main focus is really to try to focus on um, women being empowered to lead and teach um, in, uh, well, in the world, but especially in in church contexts. Now, I'll be honest with you, I, even though I've grown up Foursquare, even though that's been a part of every church that I've been a part of, I, I've never been uh, to a Foursquare church that had uh, a female pastor. Um, actually, even though Foursquare says that we're all about empowering women in ministry, I think there's only eight Foursquare churches that have a, a female head pastor. There's a lot of uh, churches that have female pastors on, on staff, but not in that lead role. So I think even Foursquare, um, if, if this is what we really believe, then there's a lot of room to grow and uh, I'll um, uh, come on in guys and there's yeah there's and if also and Gianna if somebody comes in there's not a chair we'll, we'll grab a chair for everybody glad you could make it um, but I'll get, I'll be honest with you I I if you would ask me three years ago two two years ago even like Brooks uh, like, do you believe in women in ministry? Yes, absolutely. Women should be empowered to lead. Would you like go? Would you feel comfortable going to a church that was pastored by like a lead pastor, a woman, by a woman? And I would have been like, <sighs> like I, I, because and not because I, not because I don't believe in in a woman's ability to to lead, but there's just some troubling passages in the scriptures. <laughs> That you just you're like you're like what am I supposed to do with these? They're just so hard. And you know you've, you've heard arguments, and no doubt many of you have have read some things and, and heard and been taught certain things, but uh, I just every time I confronted with those questions, I'd say like foursquare women in leadership, yes, but ah. Uh, man, I'm just, I'm uncomfortable a little with knowing what to do with some of these passages. And I, frankly, I think I just got tired not having a firm conviction in that area. And so about two years ago now, I'd say it was kind of like through the pandemic. I just thought this is one of those theological conundrums that I've been kicking around that I just want to, I want to wrestle to the ground. I just want to like, I just want to read everything I can. I want to just think deeply. I want to ask questions and I just want to, just wanna, I want to land somewhere. So what I'm going to do is just share with you kind of where I've landed. I'm not saying that this is actually even like where I'm forever and ever and ever ever landing. I mean, I, I, obviously, hopefully, we should all be learners for our whole lives and uh, and come to the scriptures humbly. And I hope that that's what we we can all do tonight. Um, so I'm sharing with you kind of where where I've where I, I've landed, and and I, I feel really good about it. Um, I can say, I feel like I have the theological underpinnings that if you were to ask me, Brooks, would you feel comfortable going to a church where a a woman is the lead pastor? I would say yes. Yes. I think that the scripture says like I've got the the scriptural like sort of undergirding to that that makes me feel like I, I could give a resounding yes so I feel good about that um so I'll share I'm just going to share some of the some of the stuff we're not going to be able to get to there's so much I was like I, I can't put it in one night so I had to put it in two but literally we could put it in eight you know so there's so much we're not going to get to everything and so um you know, uh, I'm going to just talk for a long time here tonight and just bird's eye view. We're just going to, we're going to look at a bunch of scripture, but hopefully we're just going to get some big picture and, uh, take, take notes. I will, I want to be able to answer some questions at the end and probably you're going to have some questions. We're going to leave it on a cliffhanger today because, uh, some of your questions might have to do with all the stuff that we're going to cover next week. So, um, uh, anyways, um, Oh, by the way, too, yeah, like I just, also when I was, well, I don't need to get into that. Let's get into um, uh, the notes here. So um, some of you might be thinking, like, is this even like a, maybe you didn't even know this was like a controversy in church history. Controversy maybe isn't the right word. It's been it's been a contentious topic. Like, where are, where is a woman's place in church leadership? That's um, been discussed. As we'll see, there's just some passages that are really tricky to to translate and to understand and so um, I have a lot of grace and sympathy for for people who are are thinking about some of these passages and uh, differently but if you didn't know um, there's a lot of disagreement in church world about where 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 women's place is in church ministry and there's denominations like foursquare that say yes and amen and then there's many other denominations that would say no absolutely not in um, a lot of denominations, a woman can teach, like in they can teach children, um, but but not have any authority, like from a pulpit, sort of a from a pulpit, sort of a place over um, or teach a man. There's a lot of denominations that still believe that, and so um, just uh, not too long ago, there's a guy named John Piper. He's really famous. I have a lot of respect for John Piper in a lot of ways, but John Piper is in the reformed camp of of Christianity, and that's just. That's just, you know, a camp of Christianity that believes that men should be the leaders and have the authority, and women um, shouldn't. They have a different role to play. And, um, and John Piper uh, did this—it uh, was, it was a couple years ago, I think, but he did this little podcast, and he—and um, this—we're not going to listen to it, but I just wanted to show you the website, and you can read um, everything he said in that podcast. But he was asked, do you use Bible commentaries written by women? And he had an interesting answer. He he likened, he likened it to there's two kinds of authority that a woman can wield. Uh, one like a drill sergeant and one like a city planner. In his mind, a drill sergeant is somebody that gives you a direct like command or order, like tells you to do something. A city planner um, is making decisions, and it impacts people, but a city planner isn't directly like telling people what to do, but they're making decisions that down the line, tell people what to do. You know what I mean? And so in John Piper's mind, he said, uh, a woman does not have scripturally doesn't have the author- the kind of authority that a drill sergeant has, but she has the kind of authority that a city planner would have, meaning that a woman can, you know, make, uh, be a part of the communal life, but, uh, but not in like a direct uh, authoritative way. Um, that caused a lot of ripples. A lot of people had a lot of things to say about that. A lot of people were like, amen. Um, another person that you might know of is a guy named John MacArthur. And so he's, you know, very influential. And just recently there was a video of him at a conference and somebody asked him what he thought about Beth Moore. And, uh, and he had some comments about that. And that just went viral. <laughs> and there was a lot of good conversation that came from that. I, even with some of you in the room, I felt like we had some conversations about like, man, what's going on? Um, uh, So uh, Beth Moore, actually She, um, not too long ago Maybe you guys would know You guys know who Beth Moore is um, Many of you do Um, Just uh, incredibly influential Just recently, maybe not so recently Just left the Southern Baptist movement Just because it was just even though she was raised in the Southern Baptist context, just the pressure that she was feeling um, uh, from so many men to not be in ministry in the way that she is. Like, she just, she just had to leave. I just want to read a quote from her because she wrote this letter, uh, this open letter to her Christian brothers and sisters, and I think it's a really, really great letter. It's worth reading because from a woman's perspective, what it feels like to be in, in church leadership and some of the things that she's had to endure and walk through... Um, have been pretty tremendous. But uh, here's what she says in a little portion of the letter. She says, as a woman leader in the conservative evangelical world, I learned early to show constant, pronounced deference, not just proper respect, which I was glad to show, to male leaders, and when placed in situations to serve alongside them, to do so apologetically. I issued disclaimers ad nauseum. I wore flats instead of heels when I knew I'd be serving alongside a man of shorter stature, so I wouldn't be taller than he. I have ridden elevators in hotels packed with fellow leaders who were serving at the same event and not been spoken to, and even more awkwardly in the same vehicles where I was never acknowledged. I've been in team meetings where I was either ignored or made fun of, the latter of which I was expected to, under, uh, I was expected to understand was all, it was all in good fun. I am a laugher, I can take jokes and make jokes. I know good fun when I'm having it and also know when I'm being dismissed and ridiculed. I was the elephant in the room with a skirt on. I've been talked down to by male seminary students and held my tongue when I wanted to say, brother, I was getting up before dawn to pray, to pour over the scriptures when you were still in your pull-ups. Oh, my God. I, just, I just wanted to just kind of prevent, uh, present the landscape that there's disagreement within, uh, within church traditions now and through history, just about how we interpret some of these passages. So we're wading into it. Uh, and that's a really good, really good thing. So some disclaimers, terminology, some starting points. Okay. So first we all bring our history to this conversation. I don't know how you were raised. I don't know what kind of church you grew up in. I don't know what you've been taught on, uh, on, on some of these issues, but listen, wherever we're coming from tonight, I just, I honor you as, as we'll see in a second, we're, we're going to get into some, we're going to get into some Hebrew words and look at some of how those get interpreted and it's tricky. It's really tricky. So when people land in different places um, with some of these texts, um, I just want to have a lot of compassion and I want to be really uh, humble. And so um, anyways, I don't know what what potential baggage you're coming in with or what you've experienced, but um, it's a good thing that we're walking through this. this important topic is an open-handed issue for me. So uh, we at Westside, we use this this phrase that we want to be open-handed and closed-handed. We want to be two-handed in our faith. One, like there's some things that should be in a closed hand, meaning like, man, these are things that we're just, like we're we're willing to get persecuted for, like we're willing to, to go to the mat for, because like we really believe. And for, you know, for us, it's like Jesus is Savior, King, came and died on the cross, rose again. I mean, those are like, well... We'll fight for those things, but then there's got to be like things in the open hand where we can have a lot of disagreements about plenty of things, you know. And we can we can even debate, but we can still be brothers and sisters. And so for me, I, I'm I'm growing in my conviction in this area. However, like I just I want to be open-handed in these conversations as well. Um, I want to be a brother and sister with somebody that might have a different take or a different view. Um, and as we'll see, there's a lot of nuance. I mean, there's just there's so many different there's a lot of gray area and a lot of different ways that we can read some of these passages. And so um, I want to I want it to be open handed issue for me, even though I want to be con, um, convinced in my own heart. Um, and uh, I want to be equipped to be able to have robust conversations with people when when it comes to topics like this. Uh, biblical interpretation and translation is important. It's beautiful. It's not easy and it's tricky. All right. I've, I've kind of always known this. But as, I've do- as I dove into this topic the last two years, I've just been like, wow, biblical translation. It is challenging. I mean, some of these uh, Greek and Hebrew words. Sometimes they're only used once and they're found in the scripture. And one of the things that you have to do when you interpret scripture is um, you interpret scripture by other scriptures. So if you see a word, you have to see other places in the scripture where it's used other places. And that helps you give a sense of how the word should be used. Um, If you can't find it anywhere else in the scripture, if it's only used once, then you got to look to extra biblical material. You got to look at other writers in that period that were perhaps using that word that can shed light on it. Um, But sometimes it can be really tricky. I've got an example for you Um, when it comes to the anger of the the, sometimes the Bible describes uh, God being angry or just anger in general. Um, Here's just a random passage from first Samuel. Now, uh, Eliab is his oldest brother heard when he spoke to the men and Eliab's anger burned against David. Okay, this is how uh, I think this is the NIV translation. So you read it and it says that Eliab's anger burned against David. Um, But in the Hebrew, the word for anger is your nose burning hot. That's the word that's translated to anger in our English Bibles, is you've got a hot nose. Now, for them, they know exactly what that meant, you know? Like, like I'm frustrated, I'm angry, I've got a hot nose, you know? And so, biblical translators understand that, oh, when we see that somebody has a hot nose, they're angry. <laughs> but see, if you didn't know that, I mean, like, what if our Bible translations just said, like, Eliab had a hot nose against David? We'd be so confused, you know? We'd be like, what is he talking about? Um, one famous passage is from Exodus. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord... The Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. And when in, in the original language, that slow to anger is literally translated that he's long nostrils hot. God has long, hot nostrils. You know like, what? Like, what are we? So this is just a tiny example of how biblical translation is, is a beautiful deep, rich, but tricky and complicated field of study. And I was so grateful that people just study this for their whole lives. And they have, and when Bible translations are made, they don't, it's not just like one dude usually, unless, you know, it's, and, um, you know, unless it's like, um, Eugene Peterson's, you know, the message, although maybe he had a, a like a group of people that was helping him, but usually it's a bunch of people. They get together and they wrestle through these words. And so just want us to have an appreciation because as we get into it, we're going to see like, oh, man, these are these are these are tricky passages. And you can based on how you interpret words, it can change your whole view on some important topics. Um, uh, Another thing that I want to mention, too, when it comes to Bible translation is in the scripture, it's difficult sometimes to translate male and female and husband wife language in the Bible because sometimes they're used interchangeably. And so it can be challenging. So like, for instance, in Ephesians five, where it says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, out of reverence for Christ, wives submit to your husbands, husbands love your wives. We're going to look into that next week, but, um, it, 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 doesn't say women submit to men. It says wives submit to husbands, husbands love your wives, um, but a lot of times those words for male and female and husband and wife sometimes are used interchangeably. So it is a tricky thing for, for interpreters and for then for us down the line to say, okay, when this is, is this talking to wives who are married to husbands, or is this talking to all women? You know, um, that can be challenging. So just want us to recognize that. And then next, uh, we have to just acknowledge that the dominant culture of the ancient world was patriarchal. Now, uh, We'll, we'll get into the definition of patriarchy is just this male-led, dominated sort of thing. And we just have to acknowledge that for, for most of the world's history and in many ways and, and, and places and, and uh, expressions today, patriarchy has ruled and reigned. Um, there's a quote. Um, I'm going to quote Lucy Pepiat uh, uh, several times tonight because I appreciate her scholarship. Uh, she says, The biblical texts were written by men And throughout the whole course of Christian history, the majority of Bible readers have also been men. This means, therefore, that the majority of the interpreters of the Bible have largely been men, at least the ones who have written down their interpretations and passed them on to subsequent generations. Our sacred texts have been written, disseminated, taught, and interpreted by men. We just have to acknowledge that. And we just have to think like, wow, we just have to make sure that we um, put on the right lenses um, when 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 we're trying to understand scripture. Um, Yeah, there's a lot of mass. It's when you and first reading of the scripture, it just seems like, wow, there's a lot of dudeness in the Bible, you know, like it seems like God, you know, this is this is a perception that you can easily have from the beginning It's like, well, God's a man and Jesus is a man. And Jesus picked 12 dudes to be his main leaders. And even the Holy Spirit is often referred to as a he. And it seems like just men are, you know, it's, it's God's plan that men would be the ones to, to, to drive this story forward. Um, and uh, so we just have to, yeah, on first reading, it can seem that way. And we just have to, re- and that's one of the reasons why many people have pushed off against Christianity. That's maybe, I don't know your story. Maybe this is, maybe you came tonight because it's like, this has been your... Big frustration. I was literally re- studying. For, I was reading one of the books I was reading uh, for getting ready for this. This was a couple months ago. I was on a plane and I was sitting next to this gal. Um, we were flying to um, to Denver, and I was I was gonna catch another flight. And she sat next to me the whole time. We didn't talk the whole time until we landed. And then our plane was kind of like stuck, and we had to wait for a terminal. And uh, and then finally, she, like we, we spoke up, and she's like. She's like, that book looks interesting because the title had to do with like women and being empowered and women in ministry. And I was I was like, oh, yeah, it is interesting. And uh, she said, I, I that's the reason why I left the church that I was a part of. Like, I just couldn't understand, like, why women couldn't be included. And I just felt like it was just for the guys and not for the girls. And and so we had a very short but great conversation there um, on the airplane. Uh, so um, some terms patriarchy. It's, the, it's systems in which men hold authority, power, and leadership, and women are either excluded from those roles or included if they're, as long as they're under male supervision. That's a, just kind of a, a big, broad definition of patriarchy. Um, another word that we'll use a little bit is complementarianism. It's long. Complementarianism. And this is one, and my table in the back there on the right has all the books that are putting forward this view. The complementarian view is that men and women are equal in value but have different roles and responsibilities, okay? I don't think too many people in the room like like maybe that first sentence isn't necessarily like I think the, the even the word complementarianism or comp, being complementary is a word that's like I think many of us can get behind like okay, we 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 acknowledge that men and women are different. There's like these differences. Um, and complementarians believe that men and women are equal in value but a complementarian a complementarian says but um, it's the man's role to lead and it's the woman's role to support and help and follow that leadership That's, um, that's the complementarian view and the inherent in the complementarian view is the idea of hierarchy so hierarchy is the idea of you know somebody's in charge and there's like a chain of command now Um, hierarchy by itself isn't a bad thing, right? There's hierarchy happening right now. I'm leading this class, you know? I'm in charge here right now, and you're all following, okay? In your job, there's hierarchy, and that's probably a great thing, right? It might be absolute chaos if there was no hierarchy. Hierarchy happens all the time in all sorts of different situations. So just the idea that there's hierarchy, somebody's in charge, and, you know, other people are following, that's not necessarily the That's, that's, we don't have a problem with that necessarily, but the, but the complementarian idea, vision for what the scripture teaches is that it's the man's job, it's the man's job to lead, not because he's more qualified necessarily, but because inherent in masculinity, inherent in maleness is the mantle to be in authority and women are created equal and they're, you know, just as important, but but they, that is not their job, that is not their role. They have a different role. Their role is to support and follow. That's the complementarian view. The other side of complementarianism is egalitarianism. Um, and I'm not gonna use that term a lot. I'm gonna give you a fresh term in a second, but you probably heard these two terms as like the, the two sides of this debate, complementarianism, um, and then egalitarianism is the idea that men and women are equal in value, and there should be no distinctions between their roles and responsibilities. Complementarianism, egalitarianism, those are the common uh, terms. There's all sorts of different, uh, and there's a lot of, like, it's not just one or the other. When, it, when you use those terms, it's like, like it's like saying Republican and Democrat. It's like, even, like so many of us in this room, I mean, we just, we, we, we know that the world's much more nuanced and complex, you know? That we just, there's all sorts of space in the middle. And so um, there's there's hard versions and soft versions of egalitarianism. There's hard and soft versions of complementarianism. So like, for instance, in complementarianism, um, like a hard version of complementarianism is the idea that a woman cannot speak in, a, in any sort of a gathering where men are present. Um, uh, they, t- you know, take some of those verses that we'll get to next week in the New Testament very literally about women wearing head coverings, and and that's a, that's a hard version of complementarianism. A hard, a hard version of egalitarianism would be the idea that male and female there are there should be no distinctions whatsoever between male and female. Like male and female are gone, done. Like we shouldn't even have those. Pronouns or those titles anymore. That would be a hard form of egalitarianism. Um, so just kind of laying the landscape. You know, there's a lot of people. Have, these are some of the the terms that are used. The term that I want to use, and the term that I, if you were to ask me where I land, I would say I, I don't. I'm not a complementarian. I'm a mutualist, or I believe in a, a mutuality view. Okay. Um, I, uh, the reason why is the word complementary. The word complementarianism is to be complementary is like um that sounds that sounds that's a good thing. I mean I believe that men and women are complementary with each other, but there's some more packed into that to that viewpoint than I'm willing to jump on board with. So I like mutuality and the idea of mutuality is there's complementarity but without hierarchy. Okay? So still male and female created in God's image, equal in value, in worth, in dignity. They're different, that God created gender different. We're gonna get to that in a second. But yet, in God's ultimate vision and plan that that there shouldn't be um, hierarchy. Are there situations, like, that we run into in everyday life where, like, sometimes a woman's in charge and sometimes a man's in charge just because, like, there needs to be hierarchy in different situations? Sure, sure. But the idea that a man should be in charge always just simply because he has the right genitalia, I just, I don't think the scripture teaches that. Um, So we'll get into that. So um, here's like a a longer, more robust. And I I knew before tonight people were going to be like... Are we, are, can you get us these notes, you know, cause there's, I'm going to show a lot of notes. Um, I didn't have time to print something out, but I think when we're, when we're all done, especially cause I'm using keynote here, I think I can just print all, I can make all my keynote slides just available. So I will definitely have that available next week um, because I know there's a lot of words here, but here's my definition of mutuality or the mutualist view is that men and women are equal in value and have differences that make them unique from one another, and that God's intention and ultimate vision is that these differences would make them effective partners and co-stewards of creation. Adam and Eve's rebellion caused this vision to fracture and become stained by distrust, power struggles, domination, and the desire to control. God's hope is that his church would be a foretaste of the new creation to come, the redemption of Eden, where men and women serve alongside one another as image bearers, co-rulers, and partners unto God's glory. That's what I think is a more faithful understanding of what the scripture teaches. This is what the complementarian view says. Men and women are equal in value and have differences that make them unique from one another. And these differences include different roles and responsibilities. Men are designed to lead sacrificially like Jesus. And women are invited to submit to that leadership, taking a helping and supporting role. Adam and Eve's rebellion caused this vision to fracture and become stained by causing the man to either passively abdicate his leadership role or lead in domineering ways instead of like Jesus. Women likewise will desire to step into that leadership role that they weren't designed for, causing more frustration. God's hope is that his church would be the place where men and women fit into his his created order with men humbly leading their wives like Jesus by laying down their lives, and women confidently submitting to that leadership. If you'll notice, like each of these views has uh, has a, a very a slightly different starting place, has a different interpretation of what happened when Adam and Eve sinned, and then have an, and then ultimately have a different vision for where all of this story is headed. Okay, so we're gonna get into that a bunch. Um, The question before us is, is it the complementarian view or the mutualist view? Himself, that he isn't designed to be independent; that he that he's designed to be dependent on someone else. Um, it's not good for the man to be alone. I'll make a helper suitable for him. Now, the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. Um, by the way, I think is this? Yeah. I'm, so here's what I'm going to do. I'm just going to read everything, and then we're going to like come back around. Okay? I'll stop with the commentary. I'll just read. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. And then the Lord God made a woman from the rib. He had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. And the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. And that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. That's the end of chapter 2. And then this is where everything goes south. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say that you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. Side note here, it's just so interesting. I mean, every every word in scripture, it, it matters. They were very meticulous about what, what they're writing down for us. So we, we we're just always getting like these little, interesting clues. Like for instance, God said you, you can eat from any tree in the garden, just not this tree. And do you notice Satan's question that he has from the very beginning or or this, this snake and where did this snake come from? And why is there a snake in this garden? We're not talking about that tonight. Um, it's a great conversation to have, but notice what the serpent says. He says, did God really say that you can't eat from any tree in the garden? Do you see right there? It's like, it's a subtle twist of what God had said, because God said, you can eat from any tree, just not this one tree. And then notice when Eve answers, she says, yeah, he said that you can't eat from the tree or touch it, which from what we see elsewhere in the scripture, God didn't say, or at least we're not privy to the conversation where God said, we know that he said you can't eat from it, but we didn't see anywhere where he says you can't touch it. I just find it interesting that right from the third page, we see God's words being twisted and we see humans adding to God's words, things that he never said. Both of those things, huge, huge problem. Always still today. Um, and you will not certainly die. The serpent said to the woman for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God knowing good and evil. He says, yeah, he doesn't need, you don't need him to wear the pants. Like you can wear the pants. Like you can be in charge of your own destiny. You don't need him. And so the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom. And so she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. So apparently, so I'm really sure we have to read between the lines, but apparently he's here in this conversation, um, but he doesn't say anything. And uh, she gives him the fruit. He eats it. Then the eyes of both of them were open and they realized that they were naked. And so they sewed fig leaves together and made some coverings for themselves and then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he wa- as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and when and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, "Where are you?" And he answered, "I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid." We already see this fracture taking place, like there. They're not trusting God anymore. They're hiding. They're sowing like leaves over themselves. This relationship between male and female that was supposed to be like this open and just mutual, now, it's, now there's distrust that's entered. And here's what happens. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And the man said, the woman you put, uh, put here with me, she gave me some of the fruit from the tree and I ate it. Such a punk, right? (laughs) And then the Lord God said to the woman, what is it that you've done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, and here we have some of the consequences of what's happened. Um, These are traditionally called like like there's these curses that, that happen. So one, is to the serpent first, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity, that's like anger or frustration, between you and the woman and between her offspring, between, sorry, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. We don't have time to get into this, but this is traditionally called the proto-evangelion, like the first proclamation of the gospel, of the good news. And what God's saying here is he's he's saying there's going to be strife between between your offspring, like the rest of humanity and this and this serpent. But there's going to be one that comes that's going to it's going to crush the head of the serpent. The serpent's going to bite. The serpent's going to bite his heel. The serpent's going to like going to get some flesh, but that serpent's head will get crushed. I've got this children's Bible that I read um, to to my son, William. And Jesus is described as the snake crusher just throughout the book. It's a really cool book. Um, And then the woman said to the woman, he said, listen to this. It's interesting. I will make your pains in childbearing very severe with painful labor. You will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you to Adam. He said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you. You must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, the man is now become one of us, like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the garden. Um, You know, like, man. it seems like God's being a little jerky, like kicking him out, but... I mean, we're supposed to read this as this is a really grace-filled thing to do where now, like, they've, they've got this brokenness and God wants them, doesn't want them to, to perpetually be in that brokenness. He's got to, like, kick them out so that there can be a, a plan of redemption that can start to take place. Um, so um, they go out um, and there's a, the, at the, the, the Garden of Eden, there's a cherubim kind of like an angel type, type thing and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Okay. So, so much stuff in there. The complementarian view, okay, would say this, would look at everything we just read and they'd say all these things. These would be some observations that you could, that you could take from the scriptures. You could say, well, Adam, not Eve, is made first and is thus the natural head, the leader. He's made first you can say, Adam, not Eve, is given the commands by God regarding the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, indicating that he's the natural head leader. Woman is made out of man and is therefore dependent on him. Woman is made to be man's helper. So it says it right in there. It says, I'll make a helper for you. Oh. Um, Adam was with her when she was speaking with the serpent. He should have embraced his leadership role. Like he should have stepped, he should have done what he was designed to do, but he failed. Eve sins first. This is an indication that she's the weaker sex, more vulnerable to temptation and deception. This is, this also, this is also shows that Adam has failed in his role to instruct and guide and lead her. So he didn't, he didn't fulfill his leadership role. Like, like God created into God calls the man first. So remember they're Eve sins, but remember, God comes walking in the garden. Who's Who does he call? He calls the guy, sort of indicating that he's the responsible as the head of the relationship. And then there's this verse, your desire will be for your husband. He will rule over you. The order of things is for man to rule. It says it right there that he's going to rule over you. Adam, and, Adam names Eve, which is a sign that he has authority over her. Okay. These are all things that I've heard plenty of sermons about and taught, you know, um, and some of these things have been things that I've had to like re, um, like, like relearn because there's some other, there's, there's an alt, there's alternative ways to read the narrative than, than these things. Okay. So I'm going to pull some of these out for you. Okay. Um, There's a quote from, oh, sorry, a quote from Lucy. She says, the underlying message is that men are deemed to be closer to God by virtue of their precedence in creation. Man comes first, and therefore he reflects something of God's image and glory in a more obvious way than woman, whose glory resides in him, the, the man. He holds a particular preeminent and privileged position that carries with it responsibility and authority. And as a result, women are expected to relate to God through men which we see played out in the patriarchal structures of home and church. Men are created and expected to take the lead spiritually. Women are supposed to follow. That's one way to read those verses. But here's, uh, some, here's the mutual, mutualist take on some of these things that we just read about, okay? Um, first, man is created first, right? Yeah. He's created first. Um, Adam was first in order, but not, not necessarily in rank or superiority. If anything, the Bible shows us, if anything, the Bible shows us that God is all about overturning the idea that first is best, right? We see that all throughout scripture. It's actually a really, really big theme. It's not the firstborn that gets the blessing. It's It's, it's like the, you know, it's the last it's the first will become last. Like it's not, it's not the oldest brother that, that, uh, that the prophet picks to be King it's David it's the youngest. He's the, he's the scrawniest. It's the one that you wouldn't think. Mm -hmm. So in God's kingdom, it isn't first doesn't mean best in God's kingdom. In fact, if you look at all of scripture, um, it's, it like last many times is first. So that's one thing. And then also they have got this verse that we'll come back to next week because um, we're going to spend a lot of time in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. But it says here nevertheless, this is Paul talking, he says nevertheless in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman, uh, for as woman came from man, so also man, guess what, is born of woman. But everything comes from God. I just don't buy that because man was created first that he is... Um, in charge. Okay. Uh, next is this verse. It's not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. So I already mentioned, it doesn't say that it's not good. I already mentioned that it doesn't say that it's not good for man to be single. Both genders are needed. He doesn't need help to stay independent. Okay. Being independent is going to be very easy for him. Um, He needs to understand that he's designed to be dependent on another. The man is incomplete in and of himself. And this passage of scripture has been so, or this verse right here has been so, so debated and written about and talked about uh, from the beginning for centuries and centuries. What does it mean when when the text says, I will make a helper suitable for him? Um, The words there are ezer kenegdo. I will make an ezer konegdo for him, okay? Uh, the, this word e- ezer, it means help or helper. We see it in places like in Psalm 121. I will lift my eyes up to the mountains from where, from where shall my ezer come? My ezer comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Um, ezer is used 21 times in the Old Testament, and it's most often used in, in a military context, where uh, a, a, an army is failing, and another army comes to Ezer, comes to help. Warriors are sent to help. The takeaway is Ezer doesn't communicate hierarchy; it communicates partnership. Most times, the word Ezer is used. It's used in relation to God helping humans. That all throughout the Scripture, God's coming and He's Ezering. He's helping. And so, because God is the one who's Ezering and helping, does that mean that He is under? Humans? No, of course not. <laughs> just because you're helping, just because you're helping, doesn't mean that you're like lower in the organizational chart. Because God is, by His nature, He is the ultimate helper. And so, um, the word um, Ezer. But then there's this word konegdo. and it's is used twice, just in these verses, and it's used nowhere else in Scripture. It's one of those words that's like, what does konegdo mean? Um, but the best idea that people have is that it means similar or corresponding to the it's when it says that God's going to make a helper. kenegdo for him. The man doesn't need an assistant. This isn't a helper like somebody to get the coffee. This isn't somebody to like go make a run to Starbucks for all the dudes like this is like this is a, like a warrior coming to help. And who, what kind of person is this? Like, where are they in the organizational chart? Well, konegdo means similar, corresponding to. I'll just read this whole thing. The meaning of the word konegdo is less clear than ezer. Konegdo comes with, uh, from the common word neged. The Hebrew lex... Uh, uh, I don't know, what's that word? Lexic- Lexicographers, Brown, Driver, and Briggs, give the primary meanings of neged as in front of, inside of, or opposite to when the word function as a preposition as it does in Genesis 2:18 and 20 but the word in verse 18 and 20 isn't simply neged the word has both a prefix at the beginning and a suffix at the end that's why it's so tricky because this is like a word where translators are like we don't we've never seen this word before what are they what is what's trying to get across here it's an inseparable preposition which is typically translated as like as and according to and it affects the meaning of the word neged the k prefix means that uh, means that opposite is an unlikely sense of konegdo. Of the suffix is equivalent to the pronoun him. So the word konegdo is effectively made up of two prepositions plus a pronoun and is a prepositional phrase. I don't even know what most of that means. <laughs> the whole point is that, oh my gosh, like this is a crazy word. What is this word supposed to mean? They go on. The best definition of konegdo is to what is in front of or according to. And so many translations translate Genesis 2.18 as, I will make him a helper corresponding to him, i.e., equal and adequate to himself. Um, so the different, different Bible translations translate this, this phrase differently. So the Living Bible says, uh, I will make a helper suited to his needs. Interesting. That's way different <laughs> than some of these other ones. The ESV says, I will make a helper fit for him. Um, the NIV says, "I will make a helper suitable for him." The New King James says, "I will make a helper comparable to him." Uh, the New Revised Standard Version says, "A helper, I will make him a helper as his partner." Um, it's a tricky word. It's a tricky word. But if you'll notice, a helper suited to his needs—like that's an interesting way to translate as your You're going to take something from that if you're reading a translation of the Bible that says that God says, "I'm going to make you a helper suited to your needs." Because that communicates that uh, why, why is a woman created, from uh, for my needs. Um, but the most, uh, I mean, just so much has been written about those two words. But there's nothing whatsoever in the expression is or Kenegdo" that implies subordination of the woman. That the word "Kenegdo" is this. It's supposed to be when I when the Lord says I'm going to make a helper, fit for him, comparable to him, corresponding to him. It's this idea that I'm there's this like there's this other equal that is going to come and and like finish the like be the thing that you can't be. And not in a go get the coffee sort of a way, but in a we're going to co-rule and co-partner in this together. And then it goes on so the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep and while he was sleeping he took one of the man's ribs, closed it up with flesh. <laughs> I found this interesting, but the word rib isn't even in the original language doesn't say rib. There's other words for rib and it's not in there. Um, it, it actually says, so the Lord God caused a man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took to and then closed up the place with flesh, which to means side. So it's essentially, it's God says, I'm going to just, I'm going to take your side and I'm going to close up the place with flesh. Translators, you know, kind of look at that and they say, well, he must have taken a rib. So that's why it's in the rib is in most of our translations, but the word rib isn't in there. But what I found interesting is that um, it's telling us some things. It's telling us that she's not like the animals. The animals aren't part of Adam. Eve's different. She's part of his very substance and equal. St. Augustine says this, if God had meant a woman to rule over man, he would have taken her out of Adam's head. Had he designed her to be his slave, he would have taken her out of his feet. But God took woman out of man's side, for he made her to be a helpmeet, which is the, how the King James Version translates, and an equal to him. Those are fascinating words that deserve just more study and careful care. Um, then Eve, she's deceived. Is it really a sign that she's more weak and vulnerable than the man? Um, We're going to come back to this next week because there's a passage in I think it's in First Timothy where it kind of alludes to this. And so we'll get back to this. But um, is she is she weaker because she was deceived by the snake? I don't know. There's a quote by by a a friend of mine who's a pastor, Emily Manginelli. She says this. She says she says that for the man uh, for the woman to, to sin against God, it took a talking snake and for the man to sin against God, it took boobs. i I love that if she was more easily deceived it it took a snake a talking snake for her It didn't take much for adam um so um boy guys i'm looking at the time and i'm closing in on where i needed to end and i've got so much more i knew i'd just go until we get a get to the end and then we'll stop there. But, um, here's the big question. And this is key. I I was, this is the best part. Okay. How does Genesis one and two work together with Genesis three? This is the question. So in Genesis one and two, we see God's intended created order and in God. And in Genesis three, we see the fall of humanity and the implications of that fall. So how we interpret this relationship between Genesis 1 and 2 and 3 will lead us in different directions in our um, expectation of how man and women should relate to one another. So I drew a little picture. So um, here's the idea is we've got, and it's a little bit similar to this picture that I drew here. This is like Genesis 1 and 2. This is like, this is chaos. This is Genesis 3. God makes all things right, but then this is the new creation that, where God wants to, wants to lead us. It's kind of like this little thing that I've laid out for us. So the complementarian says this, it says that in Genesis two, you see, or sorry, Genesis one and two, you see in God's created order, a hierarchy, you see male leadership and that that's God's intended preferred order. And what happens in the fall is the fall distorts this order where women now are trying to lead and men because women are trying to lead men now have to lead harshly. That this is like the, 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 this is God's intended order. The fall twisted. We're now like, instead of men leading in Christ-like humble ways, now they're leading in, in, in like, in harsh ways, that that was the consequence of the fall. And then where this ultimately is headed is men should lead sacrificially like Christ. Women submit to that Christ-like leadership, just like it was originally intended in Genesis one and two. Okay. Can I see how that plays out? The mutualist sees it different. The mutualist says, no, in Genesis 1 and 2, men and women are co-rulers and partners in their shared leadership of creation. Man was created first, and woman came from man, not because men are in authority, but because their shared substance makes them perfect partners. And then what happens in Genesis 3 is the consequences of humanity's rebellion is that now, instead of women finding their identity and their relationship with God, now they look to the man for ultimate validation. And for men, instead of living interdependent with women, now they will chase power, control, and independence. And where all of this is wanting to head, because of what Jesus did on the cross, the ultimate vision for the new humanity is that men and women are, God wants us to get back to the garden. That men and women are equals and partners, acknowledging their differences and living together in mutual submission, like it was originally intended in Genesis 1 and 2. Um, and it all hinges on this verse right here, which is the other hotly talked about and content verse where we're supposed to understand what does this mean? There are these curses. There's these consequences to this, these, these rebellious decisions that they made. And it says that your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. <laughs> I'm, I'm not alone. You guys have read that verse and you're like, what am I supposed to do with this? You know, like, what, what is this supposed to mean? Um, here's some questions. Is, is this a decree or is it a description? And, or in another way to say that, is this prescriptive or is it descriptive? This is one question that you can ask when you come to this verse right here. Meaning like, is this God decreeing that this is what he wants? Or is this God describing what is going to happen because of their brokenness? Is it prescriptive? Meaning is he saying, yep, this is, this is what I'm saying. Is, this is the game plan. You know we're running here, or is he describing the consequences of what is going to happen because things have been fractured and broken? Um, I guess I wrote something there for it. Is it a pronouncement of God uh, of God over the man and woman? Does it reflect God's intent for them in a prophetic sense, meaning? Because of what you've done, I now decree that your desire shall be for your husband, but he shall rule over you. Or is it God's pronouncement of the tragedy that they have now brought on themselves? I.e., for now, until this gets fixed, your desire will be for your husband, but he will rule over you. Um, another question to ask is, is this desire that the woman has, is it an evil desire? Or is it a good but misplaced desire? Is it a, is it a devious power grab or is it a misplaced desire? disposition. Notice it says, her desire shall be for her husband, but he shall rule over you. So it begs the question, like, what kind of a desire is this? Is it a bad, is she like, does, what kind of desire is, is like, is being juxtaposed with, but he shall rule over you. And it doesn't really, doesn't really tell us necessarily, but the different translations translate this verse in lots of different ways. The new King James version says, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. The message from Eugene Peterson, uh, which is like a transliteration, says, you'll want to please your husband, but he'll lord it over you. The New Living Translation says, and you will desire to control your husband, but he will rule over you. Very different. <laughs> the new NIV says, your desire sh- w- will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. And then the ESV, about six years ago, released a new, a new version of the ESV, and they said, this is the final, never to be changed ESV version. And one of the and one of the changes that they made was to this verse right here. And it caused so much controversy. Because the ESV, which is a highly read and um, used version, they translate it as your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. It's like which one is it? Is your desire for your husband or or contrary? Cause like, you can't have it both. Like you get into those words and it can't mean both of those things, but how you translate this verse is going to, is going to determine a lot about what you, what you believe about what the scripture is saying. Um, so I tried to, I tried to break it down. I'll read this is her desire toward or against meaning is her desire for her husband, a good desire, but ultimately misplaced, or is her desire to take the man's place to lead? Her desire to lead, um, you know, to lead her husband, no, no, he's going to rule over you. Like, is it that sort of a desire or is it a desire like, like she's placing man kind of at the center of her life when God should be at the center and when she does, and and that's going to be her proclivity, but for the man, his proclivity, instead of leading with humble submission, he's going to lead with dominance, with power grabs because he wants to be in charge. A lot hangs in the balance of how you interpret this verse. If your view is that God's created order is for man to rule and for women to follow, then because of the fall, women, instead of following, will try to lead. Therefore, the man is forced to rule over her even more firmly. The underlying message to the fallen husband faced with this contrary aggressive woman is that he will be tempted to respond in ways that are harsh, um, controlling, and domineering. What else is a man supposed to do with a contentious, controlling woman? You know, um, guys, I, I pastored, uh, I was part of a church up in Everett, Washington, and not too far away was Ballard, where um, Mark Driscoll and Mars Hill Church was just exploding. Um, and if you don't know who that is, then just ignore me for a second. But, um, but I mean, Mark, this is what Mark Driscoll taught is is that no men lead and when men don't lead like adam didn't lead when he should have stepped in but and he didn't say anything he was there but he was passive that because men are passive women then are forced to take this leadership role and and not you know not walk in there in the created order and that just caused even more chaos and so you know mark mark driscoll's whole thing was like men, you need to step up like you need to lead women follow you Christ-like leadership, but man, you need a lead. And so I just got a lot of this, you know, and, uh, and I appreciate I appreciated Mark Driscoll in a lot of different ways, but this sort of like, this sort of teaching kind of like got like in me. But as I read the scriptures now, I a lot hangs in the balance of what you think Genesis 1 and 2 are trying to do, what Genesis 3 is trying to say, and then where it's all heading. You're going to read a lot into scripture based on this lens. That's why we spent so much time on it tonight. Or you can read it like this. You can read it like this, okay? Or you can read it like this. A woman, in her brokenness and vulnerability, she turns to a man rather than to God to meet her needs. And instead of kindness and compassion, she encounters his broken and disordered need to dominate her. A tragedy played out with sickening regularity throughout history. Just a big overview of some of those strange words that depending on how you translate them, it takes you in a completely different direction. I encourage you to search the scriptures and see, do you see hierarchy here? If you see hierarchy here, then you're going to believe then that that Genesis 3, all it did was just kind of like break that hierarchy a little bit, but that God's ultimate vision is for hierarchy to exist between male and female. Or you're going to look at the (laughs) scriptures and you're going to say, hey, I don't see hierarchy here. And therefore that's God's creation. Genesis three, the fall broke that. And now what God's trying to do in the church is to restore male and female to being co-partners and co-heirs together. You're going to have to decide for yourself, but luckily I have a few more minutes because we start to see, even though there's craziness in the old Testament, we start to see some glimpses of the new creation. So, um, there's a lot of female leaders in the Old Testament. These are glimpses of where of where, even though it was, even though the ancient world was not favorable towards women, we see women in the Old Testament. Miriam, she's a prophetess. Uh, we see women leading in the Old Testament. Deborah was a judge of Israel leading well for 40 years. Um, when they discovered the book of the law, King Josiah inquired of the Lord from the prophetess. Holda, and then Esther, just speak for itself. Just go to the book of Esther and you see Esther just leading. So you see lots of different examples. Um, but then one thing that people run into when you get to the Old Testament are the Old Testament law codes. And then that's usually where things go off the rails for people when it comes to because they start reading those laws and you're like, oh, my gosh. This just does not, this seems like a, that God wants everything to be male dominated. God is, it seems like these laws are favoring men and not women. And you guys have tried to read some of those law codes and some of them are very confusing. And it, we're, it begs the question, what which, which one of these are like, is God saying should be for all time for everyone? And which one of these do we not follow anymore? You know, like. We're all going to have to come to the scriptures and dive, in, dive deep into that. But here's a quote that I appreciated. He says, because the law of Moses reflects a male-centered social environment, many view its statements regarding women as morally offensive. For example, critics argue that women frequently appear in the Pentateuch, as, Pentateuch are the first five books of the Old Testament, as dependent on or even inferior to men, and that legal rulings either ignore women or are negative toward them. Women are normally subject to the authority of a father, husband, or a brother, except when widowed or divorced. Further, a woman's legal rights are usually stated in terms of her relation to a man, or lack thereof. Even though such laws do not compose a large portion of the Pentateuch, they remain troubling to many readers today. Um, This is God giving rules and laws to the Israelites in a crazy world, in a crazy time. Um, he, wants to pull them, he wants to set them apart from the other nations. Um, and so it's good for us to remember what the Old Testament law was about. The Old Testament law was never intended as a template for God's ideal society, but rather guidelines for how an imperfect Israel was to live within an ancient, flawed society that was, among other things, polytheistic, patriarchal, and authoritarian. Uh, here's a quote from John Walton. He says, The law does not endorse those systems, but it addresses the people who live in those systems. There is no ideal social system because all systems are populated by fallen people. So we just need to go to the old, old Testament regulations. And even though we read some of them and it seems like, man, where's a woman's place there? Um, we, uh, we need some perspective. And here's the perspective I think we should have. Here's from Ronald Pierce. He says, the situation in which women found themselves under the Old Testament law was less than perfect. Clearly, they continued to suffer under the heavy hand of male dominance as a result of the fall and judgment. Nevertheless, these laws regulated to a certain extent the severity of their plight. Adultery was forbidden to both men and women. A woman accused of sexual promiscuity or infidelity by her husband had the benefit of a trial. The man who raped a woman was held responsible for his actions. Divorce and remarriage were discouraged. Widowed women were to be cared for by near relatives. The punishment of women was proportionate to their offenses. Women could participate in the covenant life of the community, including festivals and the making of vows. Thus, it can can be argued that the law neither created nor perpetuated patriarchy, but rather reflected a progressive and protective attitude towards women. It was beneficial to women in this time, bringing order to the society in which they lived." It's hard for us to get that perspective when we read it because it just seems some of those laws seem so backwards to us. But if we were to understand the ancient world, living as a woman in 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 uh, in the the tribe of the Israelites would have been like the best thing for you in that time. It would have been so much better than everywhere else. I'm reading this. We're just we're just getting a sense that God's taking humanity in a direction, and He can't do it all at once. He's got to take him in a direction, just like I've got two-year-old and a five-year-old and I wish we were out of diapers you know like I wish everybody knew how to go to the bathroom by themselves and didn't need any wiping but like this is just where I live right now and it's not going to be forever but you know I can't expect them to do all that for themselves right now because I'm going to come alongside them in their development so God's got to do that too with humanity Um, but then the prophet Joel there's this Old Testament promise that points to the new creation And Peter, when he stands up in front of everyone after Acts chapter 2 and after the Holy Spirit falls on them, he quotes from the prophet Joel. Because the prophet Joel says, Afterward, I'll pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, what? Both men and women. I will pour out my spirit in those days. I've got five more minutes. Um, I wanted to get into some of the new creation, um, when we, the, some, some women that we see in the New Testament. We see first Jesus' Jesus's genealogy in Matthew 1. Five women are listed there, which would have been very rare for, uh, for an ancient genealogy. Women usually weren't mentioned. But Matthew goes out of his way to make sure that we know that there's some women in this line. Um, He goes out of his way to make sure we see some really seedy things in the line of Jesus, which is just supposed to show us that, like, God, as you've heard me say, that God can paint some really beautiful pictures with some really, really crooked lines. Um, Next, we see Jesus' mother, Mary. Now, um, Protestants were trying to distance themselves from Catholicism, and so they were very nervous about emphasizing the role of Mary. But Mary deserves some very careful consideration because Mary is a central figure in the salvation story. Jesus gets his humanity from her. This is really significant. Um, This is from uh, Tertullian. Tertullian didn't have all nice things to say about women. Tertullian lived, like, in the first few centuries. Um, But this, I thought, he was willing to kind of get into the nitty-gritty of, like, Jesus came and and into a woman and she gave birth to him this is significant and it's it's worth some of our attention he says tertullian says pray tell me why the spirit of god descended into a woman's womb at all if he did not do so for the purpose of partaking of flesh from the womb for he could have become spiritual flesh without such a process much more simply indeed outside the womb than in it He had no reason for enclosing himself within one if he was to bear forth nothing from it. Not without reason, however, did he descend into a womb. He's saying Jesus chose to come into the world in a womb for a good reason. Therefore, he he received flesh therefrom, else if he received nothing therefrom, his descent into it would have been without a reason, especially if he meant to become flesh of that sort, which is not derived from a womb, which is to say a spiritual one um, from Lucy Peppiat, she says, Jesus is made of her, not just in her and not just through her. Mary is not simply a receptacle of the divine housing him as it were. She supplies his humanity from her own body. Her blood forms him. Her food nourishes him. Her breasts feed him. When God chose to come to earth, he chose the hiddenness of a woman's womb. When God chose to take on flesh, he chose to take this flesh from a woman. When God chose to appear, he chose to come as a baby, entrusting himself to a woman's body to be born, um, and to a woman for his care and nurture. Through a man, God reveals himself to us. That's through Jesus. And through a woman, God makes the connection to humanity. There is no doubt that in the ancient world, this represents an elevated status for women. I love that. I haven't given a lot of thought to Mary, honestly. And the idea that he's not just like in her, but he's made of her. That God chose in a beautiful message to the world that womanhood is part of his beautiful plan. I just love that. Um, I got zero time. Um, Jesus' treatment and inclusion of women is tremendous and unheard of. I mean, if Jesus is showing us what it means to be the new humanity, then we should take Jesus' cue and how he treated women. And Jesus treated women incredibly well. These they are seen and validated with dignity. Think about the woman at the well in John 4. And, uh, he, the, he encourages them to follow and be his disciples. Think about Mary and Martha. You know the story of Mary and Martha. Like Martha's in the kitchen, and you know Mary's like you know just sitting at Jesus's feet. And usually we, when we tell that story, we think like, oh, Martha's mad because because Mary's just not helping, you know? And it's like, Martha's like, come on, Mary, come help me, you know? Like, I need help. But like, think about it. Martha is in the place where where the, where typically the women would be, and Mary's in the place where typically the men would be, because disciples sit at the rabbi's feet, and Mary's sitting at the rabbi's feet, doing what the men were doing, probably presumably in and amongst all the other men. And what does Jesus say? Mary's chosen the thing. Mary's chosen the thing. And so if you think that Jesus doesn't want to include women sort of in his group of disciples, then we're, we're, we're not reading the New Testament, like we should. Uh, Mary, Jesus' mother, is first to get the news of the incarnation. She hears about it first. The angel comes to her, not to Joseph or anybody else. Martha is the first to get a preview of the resurrection. Um, in John 11, remember Lazarus is dead and Jesus is late, and you know Martha's like, "Where were you?" and and then you know Jesus says, "The very I am the resurrection and the life." And this is the first time where we're like getting this. That where like Jesus revealing himself to people and who does he choose to reveal that to like the, this divine plan that's about to take place. It's Martha. Mary's the first to anoint Jesus's body before his death. Mary, Mary breaks brings this expensive perfume and, and like, and washes Jesus's feet and all the Pharisees are like, what are you letting her do that for? But Jesus says, and truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her because she's like anointing his body like what would happen before you would be going into the grave it's this foreshadowing of Jesus going to the grave and like nobody else gets it Mary's the first one that gets it Um, they were the last ones at the cross after all the male disciples ran away except for John we're told I think John was there but all the other disciples are gone and guess who's at the cross the women are They get the first ones to get the news of the resurrection. You've heard this many times, but it's actually so, so significant that the women were the ones that were told first. In a time, in a day where, in a culture where women's word wasn't trusted in court, God entrusted the most important message to the whole world to a group of women. They were the first apostles to the apostles. They were the ones that took the news to the apostles, and the apostles didn't believe them at first to their shame. Um, Next, we have Jesus's teaching. It demonstrates that true power, true leadership tells us what true authority looks like. They're arguing about who's the greatest. And Jesus says, I'll tell you who the greatest is. The greatest is the one who serves. The first shall be last. And then when they're asking, when they're, when, when, uh, you know, the sons of thunder, their mom is like jockeying for like, which one gets to sit at the right hand of God. Jesus, Jesus is like, Hey, like the, the pagans, they use their authority and they lord it over each other, but not so with you. We don't use our authority like that we use our authority to serve. Like for Jesus, it's just not like hierarchy. Like that's not his thing, you know? And if he's like the new creation leading us into like this new vision of what it looks like to be humans, then we should get our cue from Jesus. Um, And then ultimately, I mean, the classic example is Jesus is with his disciples and he says, hey, God has given me all power under my feet. And what does Jesus do after he says that? He washes their feet. He washes their feet. Um, And then, okay, okay. I really wanted to get to this part and then we have the outpouring of the holy spirit at pentecost so huge i'll read it Um, i'm almost done i'm like so close when the day of pentecost came they were all together in one place suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven wind all throughout the old testament is this picture of life wind represents life that like the the earth was formless and void and the lord and 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 like there's the Ruach, it's the wind that came and gave life. Um, so God's life is coming and filling and like empowering the church. And they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Did the tongues of fire just fall on the apostles? No. It fell on everyone. Did the tongues of fire just just fall on the men? No. No. Everyone. And then that's when Peter gets up and quotes from the prophet Joel. Um, And then we continue to see that the story continues because in the early church, we see there's a lot of women that were leading in the early church. Um, I've got a big list here for you. We're going to get into these next week because they matter. We're especially going to get into Junia next week. That one matters tremendously. Um, But uh, where I want us to land is for today is... Genesis 1, 2, and 3, so important. Because where you feel like the the scriptures, what you what you feel like the scriptures teaching in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, where it's all the way heading, is gonna is gonna say a lot about what you believe the scripture's teaching. But what I'm demonstrating for you is is what we see, we see this like this progression. We see we see women giving a place even in the Old Testament, we see even in the Old Testament law, and then we get to Jesus. And Jesus is like running a new playbook where women are included. And then Jesus ascends and, and then the church has begun. And now we see so many women involved in all sorts of different places. I think we see that the scripture scriptures like heading somewhere. It's, it's heading not to a place of hierarchy. It's heading to a place of co-rulership, mutual submission, partnership, just like God intended in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Or sorry, in 1 and 2. But then we get to these passages right here. First Timothy, Paul writing to Timothy, a young leader in the church in Ephesus. He says, a woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet for Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner but women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. <laughs> what? I found this on the web. Oh yeah, no, don't. Um, <laughs> what could that possibly mean? What can this mean? If we see like scripture heading this direction, then what are we supposed to do with this? First Corinthians, women should remain silent in the churches. They're not allowed to speak but must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in church. Next week, we're going to just dive into those passages of Scripture. I told you it was a little cliffhanger, right? A little cliffhanger. What are we supposed to do with these? Um, If everything I was just talking to you about was, if that's all legit, like if I'm onto something there, then what are we supposed to do with that? That's what we're going to do next week. It's tricky, but it'll be fun.